Hello and welcome to the December edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Coming up, I'll be getting a little sneaky peek into just some of the different events that will be coming up in the coming months right here at JW3. I'm Kate Fulton. And I'm going to be very relaxed today. I'm talking to Michelle Sorrell, who is not only a lawyer and a homeopath, but she also teaches yoga to children and has written a book on mindfulness for children, The Wonder of Stillness. Ah. And I'm Clive Roslin, and I shall be talking to Bea Lefkowitz, who is the AJR Refugee Voices Director, and she knows all about Jewish refugees to this country. I'm also going to be speaking to Ivan Baker, whose son appeared in the recent Norwood fundraising appeal video. We'll be finding out from her what it was like on the night at the Norwood annual dinner, amongst many other things. I'm going to be talking to Mike Capazzola, whose new show, Kugelaroni, that he's taken around America, will be here for the first time in London, as well as Philip Simon's show, Duorama which has been around London, Camden and Edinburgh, and he's making an hour of Jewish stand-up here at JW3. And as if all of that wasn't enough on this bumper edition of the Jewish Views, we'll also be hearing from Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips with a delicious-sounding recipe for Hanukkah, and our rabbinic thought for the month will come from Rabbi Laura Jenner Klausner of Reform Judaism. And now a round-up of the Jewish News this month. I'm Vivian Krieger. The chief rabbi, Ephraim Mervis, has accused Jeremy Corbyn of being complicit in prejudice and added that he and his allies have sanctioned a new poison in the Labour Party. The comments came just two weeks before the general election. The chief rabbi added that Labour can no longer claim to be the party of diversity and anti-racism and that many British Jews are gripped by anxiety at the prospect of Corbyn becoming Prime Minister. Leading figures in Britain have backed his comments. The Board of Deputies and the Archbishop of Canterbury agreed that Labour had failed to tackle anti-Semitism and Baroness Rabbi Julia Neuberger said people writing on social media who claim to be Corbyn supporters write appalling things about Jews. A man was arrested by police in Birmingham after anti-Semitic abuse was directed towards Jewish children on the London Underground. The suspect was held on suspicion of committing a racially aggravated public order offence. During the incident, a Muslim woman in a hijab confronted the man and was praised for her bravery on Twitter. The Sunday Times Parent Power Guide has ranked Yavna College the second best performing comprehensive school in the country. The executive head teacher said the college was thrilled its pupils have performed so incredibly well and it made everyone very proud. Also featured in the ranking was JCOS, which was named the top state secondary school in Greater London. The writer, director and broadcaster Sir Jonathan Miller has died at the age of 85. He was famed for his work in the arts over the past 50 years, directing shows for the National Theatre and the English National Opera, even though he was a qualified doctor who, when asked, always denied there was a clash between the two. Sir Jonathan first became famous, performing alongside Peter Cook, Dudley Moore and Alan Bennett in the satirical show Beyond the Fringe in the 1960s. And finally, the actress Maureen Lipman has revived the character of BT from the BT adverts of the 1980s and 90s for a video attacking Jeremy Corbyn's labour. In it, she tells a friend on the phone, This is a kind and decent country, so why would anybody vote for the party? This lot aren't socialists, they're extremists. The two-minute video was produced by the Anti-Extremism Mainstream Campaign, which is led by former Labour MP Ian Austin, who left the party over anti-Semitism. 
Viv, thank you very much indeed. Well, can you believe this is actually the last edition of the Jewish Views for this year? Yes, indeed, for 2019, not 5780, because that would be very odd, because otherwise we've only done two episodes for that particular year. But no, for the last one in 2019, and actually it's been quite a momentous year for us here at the Jewish Views, because of course it's the year that saw us land here at JW3. And what a successful year it's been. What a highly successful year it's been. It's been terrific fun. It's been lovely. And the number of people who show interest and they come in and we're because we're in the foyer of jw3 we are part of the jw3 community we really are and also i don't know whether we've ever explained that properly have we really that we are right in the middle of jw3 so anyone who hears any background racket that's why this is the real thing anybody listening though will will wonder as the people do when they walk in why it is that we sometimes sound a bit surprised is because people are looking at us as though we're in a zoo. Yes. <laughs> we are I quite like that, though, in some weird way. Yeah. I think it's, it's nice to be admired once in a while. And we have been thoroughly welcomed, and I think I'd like to thank JW3 for making us feel so welcome. Oh, here, here. Well, no, it's a totally different situation from previous places that we went to it certainly is but just as much fun so there we go thank you very much indeed to our wonderful hosts here at jw3 and also i suppose that we should say at this stage it ain't over yet there's still loads more still to come in the year 2020 so naturally apart from this coming edition which you are listening to at the moment do make sure that you stay tuned because the jewish views promises even bigger and better guests for next year absolutely hopefully well, hopefully one should say you're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, we couldn't possibly tell you that we are based at JW3 without once in a while looking at some of the fantastic events that they have coming up. And of course, we do that most months here on The Jewish Views. But why would we only talk about one of the great events when we can talk about lots of them? Well, luckily, I know just the person who can help us with this. Zoe Steele is Marketing Director for JW3, and I'm delighted to say joins us now. Now, Zoe, just before we get into what's coming up at JW3, I need to say publicly thank you to you, because you put up with an awful lot of nonsense from the Jewish Views. You're one of the, the great unspoken credits who has to tolerate every month us coming along and setting up tables, disrupting your life. So first and foremost, thank you for that. But, but I should point out that we're not here to talk about that we're here to talk about what is coming up at jw3 and there seems to be rather a lot yeah there's a huge amount coming up over the next few weeks but most excitingly especially for us is the return of the jw3 ice rink which is perhaps one of the things that we're most famous for curious to know whether you do a, a jewish views recording on ice this year now, do you know what? I'm honestly, I'm not just saying this. As I arrived at JW3 today, I saw the banner outside advertising the JW3 ice rink, and I thought, what are the logistics of being able to do a recording on ice? Then I thought about, actually, I have done that before, a long time ago for another program, which will remain nameless. But anyway, there you go. So who knows? Maybe. And did it work? Did your wireless recording on ice work? Let's just put it this way. I needed a new microphone by the end of it, but it did work. Brilliant. Love it. Let's get it sorted. So aside from the ice rink, we are super looking forward to Hanukkah and the whole festival season, JW3. And we've got loads of stuff on. Um, We've got Chicken Shed doing performances. We have Hanukkah Funica, which is the amazing family event that takes over our whole building every year. This year it's on Sunday the 22nd of December and it's a whole family day out with activities from discos to food to games to food decorating and 
a huge disco in the hall it's an incredibly fun event and it sells out really well every year so i'd encourage everyone to come down but maybe the thing people know less about is our hanukkah light-ups which is one of my favorite things that we have in the building every winter where we have a candle lighting celebration we do a, a small hanukkah service and of course wouldn't be complete without lots of donuts and it's open to the public every day really encourage you to come down in the afternoon and you can check out our website for more details now, do you know what's curious about this place is that although obviously JW3 is rightly so the heart of Jewish culture, one thing that we don't necessarily associate it with is any religious side of Judaism, naturally, because obviously we want to try and encourage as many people through the door as possible. We get that. But it's nice to be reminded once in a while through festivals such as Hanukkah that actually, of course, we are true to the religious roots as well as all the other culture and activities that go on here. Absolutely. And one of the most important things to us at JW3 is encouraging a positive Jewish experience, which isn't necessarily a religious Jewish experience, but it is absolutely about the culture that we all enjoy, that sharing a moment together. And Hanukkah for me is just such a fantastic example of that. It's the light and the message of the festival. And we have have a giant Hanukkah on our balcony outside and it's about sending a message to the public that is we are Jewish and we are loud and we are proud and come and join in and see what it's all about. And not quite sure whether or not it's managed to match the size of the Hanukkah in Hanukkah in the Square just yet, but we're working on it, right? We're on it, we're on it. Excellent. Okay, so that's Hanukkah Hanukkah, but I know that as if all of that isn't enough, there's still even more that people have got to look forward to. So please delve deeper and tell us what else is coming up at JW3. Absolutely. So we are just wrapping up quite a few different festivals. We've had a brilliant literary festival. We've enjoyed the UK Jewish Film Festival. And of course, that's not enough. We don't end the year without doing something a little bit extra. So this year, we have a jam-packed UK Jewish comedy festival, which starts on the 5th of December, runs all the way through to the 12th, and involves just about everything you could possibly imagine, from stand-up comedy, to comedy workshops, to an evening with Maureen Lippmann, and just about everything else in between, even a discussion on Freud and comedy and the Jewish heritage in it. So however it is that you like to laugh, there is something here. And it is particularly the Sunday of that week, just jam-packed from morning till late at night with laughs for everyone. Now, you see, I'm pleased that you said about laughs for everyone, because there's one thing that slightly cranks me is that when people refer to Jewish humour, more often than not, they're under this crazy disillusion that you've got to be Jewish to enjoy Jewish humour. But actually, it is so broad and so diverse, it could actually start from taking the proverbial out of ourselves as a community and recognising that, or just observing what we notice the rest of the world to do that makes us smile. And actually, by and large, Jewish humour is completely for everybody and i'm really sort of pleased to think that this is the ideal opportunity for anyone to actually witness that just because they might be listening to this and think well i'm not jewish so i'm not going to get it wrong absolutely wrong and i think the thing that the states get absolutely right is they understand that jewish humor is ubiquitous it's everywhere and it's for everyone and it's universal and that's really what the uk jewish comedy festival was created to combat was created to combat this idea that jewish humor is just for jews or doesn't exist in the wider sphere of course it does it permeates absolutely everywhere and this is a real celebration of that it's an invitation to everyone across london and beyond to come and join us and have a laugh it's the winter season 
you want a real laugh, you can come and watch people falling over on the ice rink at the same time, which is one of my favourite things to do. Wow, you're nice. <laughs> there is nothing not funny about watching loved ones fall over on the ice rink. It's some of my fondest childhood memories. But the, the fact that humour does permeate so many areas of our culture and just putting putting it out there for everyone to come and, and join in with it for it not to be performed at but a performance with is really important well just before i allow you to trot off and get back to what is clearly a very very busy time i have to ask the obvious question how on earth does all of this come together because there is so much stuff and i know from being here month after month the jw3 team okay it's impressive but there aren't endless numbers of you there's only a limited team and yet you seem to all pull this off it's amazing how do you do it through absolute sheer will determination and an army of phenomenal volunteers so jw3 is is a charity we don't receive government funding there is an incredible team that sits behind the desk doing fantastic work all hours of every day to pull off 150 events a week and none of it would be possible without the support of a fantastic army of volunteers and i would take a cheeky moment shout out and say if that's anything that anyone would be interested in there are so many opportunities to come and get your hands involved in events at jw3 whether it's helping out with an event or in the office behind the scenes just drop us an email or give our box office a call and we'd love to have a chat with you about joining our team. And I think it's amazing the number of people who either don't know or easily forget that JW3 is a charity because, frankly, you don't behave like one, do you? <laughs> we try we try not to, and we really pride ourselves on a lot of the incredible events that we put out. But ultimately, we absolutely are a charity. We're lucky in that we're able to raise a lot through revenue generation, through ticket sales, but there's still a big shortfall, and we rely on donations and we rely on the community to pull together and keep us running well for the small part the jewish views team plays in being a part of the family that is jw3 i know that we love it here and hopefully with all of the events that you've just spoken about coming up other people will as well finally zoe just remind everyone if they want any more information on anything that we've spoken about today where do they go what do they do Go to jw3.org.uk. You can find all of the events on our website or you can call our box office number or drop in. However you would like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Zoe Steele, Marketing Director at JW3. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to us on this month's edition of The Jewish Views. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, as a society, it's fair to say that we're becoming more aware of mental health and well-being. And many people have been helped by the concept of mindfulness. Of course, arguably, we wouldn't need to look on with such wonderment towards such a treatment if we'd been brought up with such techniques. Luckily, our next guest has thought along the same lines. Michelle Sorel is a lawyer and she's a homeopath. And she's also written a book called The Wonder of Stillness, Meditation for Children. And I'm pleased to say that she joins us now. That really is quite an unusual combination to be a lawyer, a homeopath. I think you're a yoga teacher as well. Children's yoga teacher. Children's yoga teacher. And mindfulness. How do you, well, first of all, how do you juggle all that? I work part time as a lawyer and I have time to see patients and to write on the days that I'm not working in the city. And I seem to enjoy doing both things. It seems to work for me quite well. So for people who are not sure what actually mindfulness is how would you describe it what what is mindfulness so mindfulness is bringing all your attention to the present moment without having any judgment at all usually when you're 
thinking about your breathing or you're doing an activity like gardening or cooking or walking where you're just concentrating on that present moment. That's being full of mind or mindful. And what do most people do if they're not doing that? What's the opposite of being mindful? Being mindless. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I asked for that. (laughs) What do you mean by that? If a person is quite stressed and quite busy, they may be overtaken by emotions or by too many thoughts to be able to act in perhaps you know a more centered way so it's it's allowing your stressful or sort of jumbled thoughts to take over without really giving yourself time to be still to pause and give your chance yourself a chance to respond in the most appropriate manner so when you go into say a group of children who are all sort of running around this one wants a biscuit and that wants the toilet and that how do you how do you bring them together how do you create that mindful that stillness that wonder of stillness when i used to teach children's yoga in schools we did a few yoga exercises first so we'd sit around in a circle and we'd do some very gentle movements and then we'd breathe together and i'd put on some very relaxing music and i think the music is something that creates a very calm atmosphere and then I'd use a calming voice and we would go and have a story. We would use a visualisation, use imagination and go into a story that would capture their imagination so they would be able to concentrate and right, to be so calm. You do have a very calming voice, which is lovely. I'm feeling relaxed talking to you. The process of mindfulness, to get them sort of to focus, if you like, to stop having all the extraneous mindless thoughts, that's centred around a story. So for children, I find it's very helpful to have a theme or a story. For example, it's autumn time now, so I used to get the children to collect an autumn leaf and before they start the meditation, to look at the leaf, to look at the colours, look at their neighbour's leaves and then close their eyes, start to breathe and then go into a forest full of beautiful golden, yellow, red leaves. So it helps to have a theme or a story. That is lovely. And... What is the result of the mindfulness? I mean, we've practised it, we've done it, we've done the breathing, and what do you hope to gain from it? Well, for children, I hope that they can find a quiet time so they know that they can go off on, on their own if they need to, and if they have a problem or if they feel a bit anxious or uncomfortable, they can find their own space and just breathe and find time to think and reflect or learn techniques to calm down. And I think that it provides a lovely opportunity as they grow up, become adults. They have something that they can use throughout their whole lives. Well, talking of adults, which, which we all are around, around this table, and you can probably hear, hear, hear around JW3, how do we translate that into adult mindfulness? How would you sort of segue from thinking about leaves, or would that also work for adults? Adults could have any sort of theme or visualisation I think it would be appropriate to use some of the meditations in the book for adults, actually, but you might want to have something to do with trees, something about finding your own wisdom, something... If you have a problem, for example, you could visualise a tree, go into the tree sitting under it, asking do, questions. Do you think there is any clash or, or anything that is contrary to, to Jewishness, if you like, in mindfulness. Is there any, you know, some, I know some religions that, that maybe have idols or something that we couldn't do, but is there anything, is there any one power, if you like, in mindfulness that, uh, that would be clashing in any way with Judaism? Not at all. I've taught and volunteered at Jewish schools, even at Kisharon, which is very orthodox, and there was no problem with having some sort of relaxation and mindfulness. Because it's all going class. back into yourself, it's yes. not about a higher 
power or anything? No, it's all about taking a journey inside and it's about breathing and, and becoming calm and relaxing so that I've, I've not experienced any problems at all. Could you read us an example from your book of mindfulness? What did I say? We actually get a sense of how it feels to listen to it. Of course, yes. And I should at this point say, if you're driving or if you're doing anything that you should be concentrating on, listen, listen to this bit later. But otherwise, um, thanks, Michelle. Close your eyes and notice your breathing in and out. See yourself walking in a park on a mild autumn day. Look down and notice a large red leaf that has fallen down in front of you. Pick it up and look carefully at the colour of the leaf. Look at its size. Look at its texture. It may be smooth or rough. Now look up and see that the leaves have many different colours. There may be yellows, gold, orange, red and brown leaves. The park has been transformed from the greens of summer to the warm oranges and reds of autumn. There is a carpet of orange and brown leaves that have fallen from the trees to the ground underneath. In a few weeks it will be winter and the branches of the trees may be bare. Then spring will arrive with its green shoots, leaves and flowers, followed by the bright colours of summer. The seasons are constantly changing in the yearly cycle of life. Let's take more time to notice the changes and enjoy each season as it greets us. Take a deep breath in and breathe out with a sigh. And when you're ready, open your eyes. Ah, well, if if you say, if I must open my eyes, quite enjoyed that. Thank you, that was really, really beautiful. Ah, well, I feel very relaxed at that point, and I shall just say thank you very much. Thank you. Ah, well, I don't know about you two. After that, I feel all nice and calm quite sure thank you very much indeed to michelle sorrell for that and if you do want to get a copy of michelle's book by the way you can find it do a search online for the wonder of stillness meditation for children and i'm quite convinced it will pop up at any half decent book distributor you're listening to the jewish views in association with jw3 the association of jewish refugees has recently launched a new initiative which will see AJR members up and down the UK recorded as an historic archive of their experiences. This is essential work to ensure that we continue to learn from our past and ensure that mistakes aren't repeated. How often have we heard those words and yet we still don't necessarily adhere to them? Luckily, someone who is determined to help remedy that is Dr. Bea Lefkowitz, who is the AJR Refugee Voices Director, and I'm delighted to say she joins us now. How are you determined to help remedy? How are you doing it? We have been interviewing refugees and survivors all over the UK since 2003. So at this point, we have almost 250 interviews, 
And when we started it, our aim was to remember, to educate and to document their lives. And we are now at a stage where we, are, we want to disseminate this material as widely as possible. So we have recently launched a website and are putting our testimonies now on social media and hoping to reach wide audiences. So by capturing the experiences of the refugees and survivors, we hope that they will inspire the lessons to be learned, I think, are of a broader nature. Because, for example, we have in our archive more than 60 interviews who came on the kinder transport to Britain among the 10,000 children who are allowed into Britain. And I think they are a very good example where we can look at how, how they came, how they were fostered, how well did they do. And those, I think, are lessons for today, unaccompanied children. What is it that was wrong that was when these refugees first came to this country? Well, I would say the effort after Kristallnacht, after the November pogrom in November 38 the British government allowed children to come in. So the effort was to bring children in. They were partly fostered. They, they stayed in homes. Sometimes it was the children, it wasn't possible to check up on them and see, you know, what actually happened to them. And they, they, was, they were put into families sometimes who were not necessarily Jewish. No, often they were not Jewish. There were not enough Jewish families who came forward. So it was very much in a question of individual luck what happened to the children. Many children had good experience. Other children had also very bad experiences. Some children, especially on the older end, they became 15, 16. They couldn't finish their education. Uh, some people became, they were, they, you know, they were brought to farms. They became farm workers. They had to escape from farms. So we have some pretty you know, difficult stories in the archive, but it's a mixed bag. So you're saying, in fact, that there were a lot of them who perhaps even lost their Judaism. Definitely some lost their Judaism. Some were also, they were brought to Quaker families. The Quakers played a very important role in this. And some Quaker family made sure that the children knew that they were Jewish and had Jewish instruction. But some children were not told, for example, that they were Jewish. But we have also instances of children who came as child survivors to Britain after the war. And they then also were fostered. And we have the case of, of Jackie Young, who's in the archive, who, for example, didn't know at all that he was adopted, and he only found out much later that he was adopted and that his parents were actually from Austria and didn't survive. So why did this happen? Why wasn't it done in a more subtle way that they went to Jewish families or they, they were told who they were and where they were and not just end up perhaps in, in terrible situations? Well, you, you have to remember that we're talking about many children and they came out in a very short amount of time between December 38 and September 39. Uh, a shorter time is that? Yes, so the Jewish organization uh, who organized it had it, not only Jewish organizations, other voluntary organizations actually had the problem how to, how, where to put the children. And this is a complex story. And there, there were people, and we've interviewed, for example, a man called Ari Handler, who was responsible partly for the children. And in his, in his interview, he argued that they shouldn't have been fostered out. They should have stayed together, and it would have been better. But at the time... The idea was, you know, if there are families available who want to take children in, then that should be the case. For example, Lord Attenborough's family took in two refugees. And another person we recently interviewed is somebody called Paul Villa, 
And it turned out he was actually taken in by the then Labour leader, Clement Attlee. Oh, really? And he yeah. stayed with them for four months in Stanmore. And I have to say, to our surprise, when we did the interview, this came out. We didn't know about it before. And following the interview, we realized that this wasn't common knowledge. And we managed to organize a reunion between Atli's grandchildren. Atli's grandson is a, is a, a member of, uh, in the House of Lords and Paul Willer. So there were also instances of better-known families who took in refugee children. Right. I gather we can hear an example of one of their recordings. So let me just say, yes, we launched, we had a big launch on the 7th of November at the Wiener Holocaust Library, and we were very lucky that we invited Lord Daniel Finkelstein and his sister Tamara Finkelstein, whose parents we both interviewed for the project. And at the launch, I showed a film, which you can see on our website as well, about his mother, about their mother, Miriam Finkelstein, who is a survivor of Belsen. They were taken from Holland to Westerbork and then Belsen. And we showed the film, and this clip was then tweeted the next day. And I'm very humbled to say that within days, almost 55,000 viewers listened and watched this, this bit of testimony. Lots of shops we could not go into for Bowden, for Joden. And then, of course, a star. And that was very much impinged on us, as it were. We had to wear this star, and it had to be on our... Whatever we wore outside, had, it had to show, so it had to be sewn on. Incidentally, those stars had to... I probably think it's very strange. We had to actually buy those stars. One actually had to go... You know, only the Germans could think of this, you know. We had to purchase these stars. Well, that was absolutely fascinating and, and, and quite moving, in fact. What are you doing now, though, these days? What, where, are the, where are the Jewish children who are refugees? Today they are, of course, mostly elderly, and the Association of Jewish Refugees is mainly a social welfare organization supporting its members. So there are people are... In, all over the country, you know, obviously some people have died. A lot of them, some kinder, especially the kinder, are very involved, like Lord Dubs, to bring unaccompanied children over today and have taken that lesson on as well. So those people that survived are still around. Very few of them are still around, but they're still there to help and to help them, in fact. Yes, and I should also say that many are also very involved in Holocaust education and they go out to schools, they're very busy, you know, and to tell their story. And I should say also in our archive, it's not only testimonies, not only videos, but we also document photographs and letters. And often they're very, very moving letters of the parents who sent the children. For example, as a lady we interviewed called Ursula Gilbert from Berlin, and in her interview at the end, she shares the letters the parents sent and she shows us she brought a prayer book in which the father put 10 points to remember them and 10 points of guidance, life guidance. And they're very, very moving. And basically the 10 points are saying, don't forget you're Jewish, behave properly, don't forget that you're German fatherland, but also respect your new home and make sure you honour your new home and you're grateful to the country which is taking you in. So they're very, very moving documents. And could I just ask you, finally, is there any, if anyone wants to get in touch, where do they go? 
Yes, please go to our website, ajrrefugeevoices.org.uk, and you can access the, the photos and documents there, and it will also tell you where you can watch the interviews in London, for example, in the Wiener Holocaust Library. Well, thank you very much. This is a very moving story we have to tell. You do wonderful work. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, as we've already heard in this program, the UK Jewish Comedy Festival for 2019 is nearly here at JW3. And amongst the many shows and events that are going to be taking part will be our next guests. I'm saying guests here because I've got two people that I'm going to be talking to. Mike Capazzola, whose new show, or his newly named show, Kugel Roney. He's taken around America and this is his first time in London. So we're looking forward to that. And Philip Simon's show, Jewarama, has celebrated success at both Camden and the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And they'll both be making their way to JW3 to perform in the Jewish stand-up. So, Mike, you're going to be here on the 8th of December. That's right. Matinee show. You've had an interesting career. You're a cartoonist. I started as a cartoonist as a kid, but I've been doing stand-up for 30 years. I guess 50 years as a cartoonist and 30 as a comedian. What, like, is your 80? Yes. <laughs> right, okay. You look well on it. Thank you. What made you kind of get into Jewish comedy? I was living in Washington, D.C., and they needed a smart comedian for a show, and I got the gig, and one thing led to another. It was by default, really. They just they needed somebody who, who wrote clean and clever for a Jewish group, and they didn't even know I was Jewish. They just liked what they'd seen. So, And you're Jewish? Like, yeah, and then referrals rolled in. It was just a fluke. That's amazing. Yeah. And then you sort of, a little bit like us meeting here today. And what other sort of things have you been doing around the States? Mostly stand-up comedy and TV work. Presenting, I think they call it here in England. In America, it's hosting. You know, a lot of, I'm so lucky that the commercials that I've done don't appear in England. It's just a lot of nonsense, infomercials, hooey, nothing you want to be known for. Like, you know, like, oh, I've seen that commercial with the jingle. Ah. Here, here I've got a clean slate. I can launder can my absolutely, identity. Absolutely, completely restart. Can I, can I bring you in, Philip? Hello. What's your background? Hi. I've been doing comedy now for about eight years, full-time for nearly four years. I was an actor before then, so I've also done commercials, but managed to make them ones you can see in this country. <laughs> I was doing that. And then a few years ago, a friend called Aaron Levine approached me to, to work with him on Jurorama, which was something that he devised and came up with. And together for the past couple of years, we've taken it to a number of festivals around the UK, and now we're bringing it to JW3, celebrating Jewish comedy. OK, what, what does Jewish comedy mean to you? It really it's an interesting one because it's, it's different for everybody, because a lot of people, if you hear Jewish comedy, they think Jackie Mason, they think... Joan Rivers, the, the Catskills kind of... Yeah, a lot of shrugging comedians. shoulders and, yeah. Yeah, Mel Brooks, people like that. What we really wanted to do was just have a platform for comedians who are Jewish. Their material isn't always necessarily the most Jewish material. We also, in, in the Edinburgh show, we were doing a mix. So there were Jewish comedians and then Jewish comedians which were other comedians who just happened to share some of the neuroses of being Jewish because we found that there was actually a lot of crossover if you have a number of comedians who people think, well, they, they look Jewish, they sound Jewish, but they're not Jewish. Um, we were happy to give them a bit of a shared platform. 
Mike, what does being sort of a Jewish comedian mean to you? And um, is there a sort of a different slant, the, the American perspective? I mean, many of us will see Mrs. Maisel, and you sort of you end up going down down that route in your head. In America, there are so so many people, especially in New York, that shaped my view. I was there for a long time, and so I grew up. But everybody knew someone who's Jewish, or they were Jewish, frankly. So that kind of smart alecky humor. It grows wild in New York, and I see it a lot in England. I love how funny people are, the cab drivers, everybody. There's a great sense of humor. I feel very much at home. Something happened to a buddy of mine, which pretty much encapsulates the American Jewish comedy experience. My buddy Jeff Chrysler was telling me he was at a gig. Didn't make mention of the fact that he was Jewish, but somebody came up to him afterward and said, are you a Jew? Which is separate than, you know, he said, why do you ask? He said, because your material's all smart and wordy and stuff. I'm, ah. That's the quote, all smart and wordy and stuff. And that is kind of maybe a... a that's a Jewish a, condition, actually, isn't it? So, I mean, we're, we are quite wordy people and hopefully quite clever, we think of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. it's an educated crowd. It's, it's, education's a huge part of our culture. There's a big difference between somebody who would absolutely smash it at a Hindu and stag party in Hull at 11.30 at night versus somebody who's got a crowd where they want... Yeah. They want wordplay. They, they want references. It's, it's thoughtful. It's literate. It's informed by a worldview and travel. Yes, exactly. Philip, have you got a place... Where do you sort of really enjoy performing? I think my favourite places are around the UK. I'm, I'm based in London, and there are some great clubs there, such as Backyard, Top Secret, obviously the Comedy Store. But I really love getting out of London and travelling as all kinds of far-flung places around the uk where people maybe it's their only comedy night of that month you know they've invested in the night out they've got a babysitter they've gone out for a meal as well and comedy is then part of it and you you have a really vibrant audience that are interested in what you have to hear and i talk about being jewish on stage and when you're talking about that to people who've never met a jew or never knowingly met a jew and they're fascinated by what you've got to say. Or willingly met a Jew. That, for me, is, is really exciting to have an audience like that. I do run a comedy club in Boreham Wood, where I live, a monthly comedy club, and I find the difference between a room that is... It's not a Jewish comedy club, but instinctively a lot of the audience members are Jewish because that's the demographic of my social media reach. The difference between there and out in the provinces all over the UK is is fascinating. It's such a nice place to be able to get some other acts to come and gig because it's only about twenty five minutes out of London on the train. When you're, when, I mean, I've got both you and Mike here together. Do you feel kind of you've got to out funny each other with every? Or it's not like. You can sort of be uncomfortable. I can't imagine what it must be like to have a sort of convention of comedians all trying to, trying to hog the limelight. Do you find that at the comedy festivals? It's exhausting. But really? I, I You're just constantly kinda, thinking. I like to sit back and watch. I mean, that's, that's fine. I don't feel the need to... I save it for the stage. It's never something where I like waiting to get a word in. No, it's never No, it's not that like that. No, Do no. you find that, Philip, that sometimes you're, you're expected to be funny all the time? Not by other comedians, because oh, you know each other. Of, yeah, you're both saying the same yeah, thing. You, yeah, we know each other and we know, we know the game. It's a job. It's, it's something you do to earn a living and to entertain people. Right now, the number of times people come up to you in just everyday conversation when they discover you're a comedian and they assume you're going to use their entire conversation as part of your set. Oh, gosh, yes. Or, or they say, 
or they say, oh, you, you can have that after they've cracked a joke, uh, as if what we don't do isn't original material. You know, that, that yeah. thing. Yeah, like, oh, that's so annoying. That must be so annoying. Mike's nodding. Yeah. Go on. What were you going to say? I, I was going to put it over to Philip and say, Philip, you've probably, I think you're married, you've probably experienced what I experienced when somebody says to my wife, oh, you live with a comedian? That must be such a treat. And then, yeah, yeah, it's a real, it's really a treat. Well, my... My wife's a psychologist, so I think most people say to her, you live with a comedian, you must be overworked. <laughs> so, yeah, but, but you're right. People people assume that we are on all the time. Yes. And that's why, the, you know, I know this isn't necessarily the point of this podcast, but there's a lot of mental health issues that need to be talked about generally. And, and look at comedians who've struggled, you know, even up as, as far up as someone like Robin Williams. Comedians mm. are assumed to be funny people, happy people all the time. And they're just ordinary people with ordinary problems. Yeah. Yes. Just to remind our listeners, Mike, you're on Sunday the 8th at 1.45pm. And Philip, you're on Thursday the 12th of December at 7pm. And tickets can be bought from JW3 online at jw3.org.uk. Good luck for both of you. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, last month saw the annual Norwood dinner take place. As ever, it was a perfectly lavish affair, and I know because I was there, that raised a considerable amount of the £12 million Norwood needs to run. I know, £12 Set against a backdrop of guest speakers, well-known community members, and some of the more generous individuals Judaism has to offer, our next guest was like me, one of a great number of people who were recently at the Grosvenor House Hotel. Ivan Baker's son, Joseph, featured in the appeal video, and she also gave the appeal speech on the night. And I'm thrilled to say that we can speak to her now to find out more. Ivan, welcome to The Jewish Views, and thank you very much indeed for taking time out to come and speak to us. First and foremost, we have to start off with and saying well done to Norwood. What a night! It was fantastic. It was incredible, wasn't it? So the whole evening was just amazing. Such an honour to be part of it. And not to mention it was catered by Tony Page noch. Oh, so, you know, delicious. It was, it was very nice food as well. Very nice. Not that Tony Page is paying me anything to advertise him, <laughs> but still at the same time, I thought it was worth mentioning, just to give you an idea of what we were up against. Now, the actual evening itself obviously had a very serious purpose, and that is actually something that you know only so well because as mentioned your son joseph was in the appeal video so why not tell us first and foremost what it is that norwood means to you and your family and what they've done for you well norwood means everything to us particularly at the moment it's such an exciting time for joseph but if i go back when he was 16 well even before that he had trouble learning at school he found keeping up with all his friends at school really difficult he had terrible anxiety which just grew and grew and grew which is such a common thing these days life's very difficult for young children at the moment and they just helped him he was just like a lost soul and they took him in well eventually we found them they took him in and they just taught him life skills things that your mum and dad and your sisters can't teach you and I'm just so grateful to them now he is just doing so amazingly well. He's just got himself a new job. He's going to be a driver. He got an email from his new boss saying, you're going to be driving Tesla cars. Wow. <laughs> he's, just, he's just in heaven at the moment. Well, that's not a bad gig to have. I tried to I buy one of those recently. They were a bit too pricey for my liking, <laughs> so that's not a bad job at all. Yeah. 
So what would you say then in that case that that is meant for you? Because obviously I think a lot of the time that people forget that with Norwood, that it's not just the individuals who maybe have a shall we say, need for their particular services. But actually, people underestimate just how much the families benefit as well because it, it sounds a bit cliche, but it almost gives you a break, doesn't it? It gives you space. I don't think you realise what it's like to have a child with special needs. It show, if you watch the film, you'll see what it's like to have a child with special needs or anxieties about life. It's just all-consuming. It's all you can think about all the time. And, you know, in this day and age, we had so many courses that he could have gone on. And every time we went to Access One, they'd cancelled it. And it's just like... It's painful for you. It's painful for the family. His sisters used to take him out and do lovely things with him. But that's not cool. You can't, and you can't keep going out with your mum and dad and your sisters. You know, and you need to go out with someone the same age as you or someone independent who can show you what life is all about. Well, let's have a little hark back, shall we, to the actual night itself. Because you were not only amongst the guests there but you were actually amongst the speakers there because you stood up in front of a a room of about i reckon there was about a thousand jewish people and there was 1300 people there there. you go 1300 i wasn't far off there 1300 people Mm. in the grosvenor house hotel wow and frankly that is that's that's you know a bit of a mean feat that's quite impressive i know were you nervous (laughs) <laughs> Actually, I I had this attitude. I was, I was nervous a few days before. I was a bit snappy at home. I was a little bit nervous. But a few days before, I thought, nerves are such a waste of time. I want to really enjoy this amazing experience. I've accepted this challenge, and I really wanted to enjoy it. And I threw my, my nerves away, and I partly did it for Joseph as well, because I wanted him to see face your challenges and do them and how wonderful you feel afterwards it was one of the most amazing things i've ever done i was so proud of myself well if you don't mind me saying i think it's a rather impressive achievement getting a room of 1300 jews to shut up and pay attention <laughs> so you did something right well, that's for sure something right <laughs> now as far as the evening was concerned as well i've also sort of alluded to off air before that i actually happen to be very privileged to sit on the same table as the cast of Fiddler on the Roof. Of course, they were just in the West End. I think they're now going on tour or something like that. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about a very fancy-schmancy do this. This was not just a run-of-the-mill charity dinner. It was above and beyond. It was. It was incredible. The people that were there, it was just like, wow, look at these people. And I'm this little old me, teacher... <laughs> Well, just to give it some context, I mean, a lot of the glitterati were there, as I've also mentioned before. You know, some of the the wealthier members of the community were there, obviously, because they had to do their fair share of donating. But the chief was also there. Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis was there. So all of these amazing individuals all under one roof. And it just felt like a, a very, well, I don't know about you, for me, it felt like a great privilege to be there. It was, but... I learned something from the night. I was looking at all these very wealthy, very influential people and very important people, and I felt humbled because they were there to help us. These people, if you, if you need to ask for help, these are the people who want to help you. And I didn't feel ashamed to, to be there. I was treated as an equal, and it was just a lovely feeling that you were part of their group, 
you weren't higher or lower or in the middle or anything. You were equal to them, and they just wanted to help you, which is just an amazing feeling. It was. It really was. As I, said, I can't go on about it enough. It was a fabulous evening, and I should point out the importance of nights like that for charities such as Norwood and of course our very own JW3 a lot of people forget JW3 is also a charity so all of these different organizations that keep our community going and really actually help make Judaism in this country what it is they really do need our backing or else we risk losing them so as far as I'm concerned Ivan Baker thank you very much indeed for playing your part to keep Norwood going I hope that we're doing our part to keep JW3 going one way or another we're all doing something and it's been a great pleasure speaking to you on this month's edition of the Jewish Views many thanks thank you thank you so much it's time now for a Hanukkah recipe from our Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips Hello, and it's coming up to Hanukkah, and this year Hanukkah starts on the evening or Sunday, the 22nd of December. And of course it's about olive oil, or oil, of any description. But it is very much luckers and donuts. So I would thought to just talk about a little bit about both. So if you are making luckers, why not make them to perfection? So I have a few tips in order for you to make them really delicious, but also not a disaster. So when you're making your latkes, which is a plain traditional one, which is made with potato, make sure when you grate them, you squeeze as much liquid out as possible because oil and water just don't like each other. So really using a cloth and squeeze as hard as you want, you'd be amazed how much water comes out a regular potato. And which potato to use is a key one. Use King Edwards. They're particularly good. And then also, when you come to flavour it, over flavour. Because really, it does mellow as it cooks. And a little bit of baking powder makes them lighter. And then it comes to the actual frying. Which oil to use? And as far as I'm concerned, there is only one oil you can use to cook luckers. And that's rapeseed oil because you get the best results. They don't burn. And rapeseed oil has got vitamin E. It's a healthy option in it. Omega-3 oils, omega-6. So definitely it is the best option to use. Don't overfill the frying pan because this would reduce the heat of the oil and they will go soggy and we want them to be beautifully crispy. So you cook them on both sides. I don't want you to have any anemic lacquers. And a safety tip use a splatter screen to protect you and the hob and one of the key things i really want to make it very clear when you finish cooking your luckers do not put them on kitchen paper put them on a rack so many recipes and even ones today say put it on kitchen paper and all that does is make them soggy if you put your latkes on a rack all the oil drips off If you leave it on the paper, it soaks in. So it's a really good tip. And to make them doubly, doubly, beautifully crispy, finish them off in the oven on about 200 degrees Fahrenheit for about 10 minutes, and they are really crispy. So that is how to make the perfect luckers. My favourite recipe of my own is beetroot luckers, and we will put that on the Jewish Views website. It is already on my website, Jewish cookery.com but essentially it is raw beetroot potato some white onions a little bit of tahini paste flavored with dill and coriander and 
combined together with plain flour, porridge, some eggs, and it is just delicious. So that's my top tip for Hanukkah 2019. Hugs and best dishes. And it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the month. Rabbi Laura Jana Klausner from the movement of Reform Judaism. I've been thinking about how Jewish values can make us be better on social media. And I think that there are three Jewish values that we could bring in mitzvot, commandments, to social media communication that would really, really make a difference. So the first one, I would say, is derech eretz, is treating each other properly, is doing the right thing, is etiquette. And one way of assessing whether you're doing the right thing or not, and whether what you're saying is derech eretz, proper behaviour, is to ask yourself, would I say this to the person's face? If I would say it to their face, it could be derech eretz. But if you wouldn't, this is not the right way of doing it. This is not courteous. Um, This is not etiquette. So that's the first mitzvah to bring to social media. The second mitzvah that I would bring is about kavod habriot, is about honoring each other and working out whether the language that we use, the expectations that we have are honor someone, make them stronger or make them weaker. We have the capacity to speak which is seen as what makes us different from other animals. So in that capacity to speak, we can hear someone else's voice. You can hear the tones, you can hear the nuances. We lose our capacity to speak in that way and to hear each other that way on social media. So remember that as a mitzvah, kavod habriot, that it's speech that matters, even though we're experiencing it through text. And the last mitzvah to bring is tzniot, modesty. We wouldn't show off to our friends how much we've spent on something, how much we've given us staka, how much something costs. So why do we do that on social media? Or maybe turn it around. We might say to our friends, gosh, that cost X. But why tell other people? Because your joy or your expanse or your capacity is often someone else's pain. Any simcha, any baby blessing, any wedding, any birthday is often someone else's pain because they don't have it or they remind or it reminds them of something. So when you put something up on social media, think this is my joy, but if I'm going to be modest in this, if I'm going to use tsniut, what should it sound like? So three values for social media, derech eretz, proper etiquette, kavod habriot, how would this sound if I could hear the nuance? And the third one is modesty, not showing off in a way that may be hurtful to others. Thank you very much to Rabbi Laura Jenna Klausner from the movement of Reform Judaism with our rabbinic thought for the month. And that's it for this episode of The Jewish Views. Thank you very much to all of our guests, to Zoe Steele, Michelle Sorel, Dr. Bea Leskovitz, Mike Capazola, Philip Simon, Evan Baker and Denise 
Phillips. And of course, thank you to all of our guests for 2019. With the list I've just read out, you'd be forgiven for thinking I've thanked all the guests for 2019. What a bumper edition this has been. It's been terrific. Great fun, though. Thank you very much indeed goes also to our producer, Sue Greenberg, who works tirelessly putting this program together. So, Sue, thank you very much indeed from all of us for all of your hard work for this year. And of course, thank you at home for listening. We do appreciate your loyalty and we do hope that you will continue to listen as we enter the unknown territory that is 2020. Don't forget you can listen to this edition or any previous edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website jewishviews.co.uk and please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. But from me, Phil Dave. And me, Kate Fulton. And me, Clive Roslin. Hanukkah Sameach and do have yourself a very happy, healthy 2020. We'll see you in January. Goodbye.